Good morning, everyone. My name's uh, Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, great to be with you this morning. If you're new or visiting, an extra special welcome. Um, If you're returning from school holidays, great to have you back. Um, I've got good news and bad news this morning. Uh, the, The... Bad news is last week, we've been working our way through John, and last week we tackled uh, John 8, 12. We just did one verse, and it took 50 minutes, and this week we're covering 11 verses. And so, if my maths is correct, we're here for nine hours this morning. So, that's the bad news. The good news is I cut it in half, so we're only here for four and a half. Uh, we, we, as a church, we've been working through the book of John, um, this is an incredible gospel of uh, that, that John, the apostle who walked with Jesus, writes. Uh, we talked about how it's, just got, it's got so much depth to it because John has had time to kind of sit and uh, meditate on who this guy was that he walked with. Um, and he comes to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God and that uh, these claims that Jesus made were actually true. And so he writes this account of his time with Jesus, and he gives us this amazing insight into uh, who Jesus was. And so this morning, if um, maybe you are not a Christian, maybe you're not a Jesus follower, and so uh, I would just say to you, like, here is an, an awesome opportunity to hear from somebody who walked with Jesus and recorded what he said, and uh, to kind of see, you know, what is the go with Jesus? You know, what what is it that he said? What is it that he claimed to be? And why might it be true? Um, For those of us who are Christians in the room, um, I shared a little bit last week just about how this is an opportunity for us to better understand our faith, better understand who we are as Christians, what that means, who Jesus is, how, how our salvation has come about, and how we can live out of that because the more that we understand who we are and how salvation works, the, the better and, and uh, we can live out of that and we can live out our faith. And so we're going to pick up where we kind of left off from last week. And uh, last week we talked about this amazing claim and this promise that Jesus made in verse 12, uh, where he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And we unpacked that um, and what exactly that meant. Um, And so if if you weren't here last week, I just encourage you to go to um, our our Spotify uh, podcast of all the sermons. You can have a listen to that, um, or you can find the sermons on our website. And... um, and basically, what I want to do is, is just really quickly recap that because it's so important because everything that follows today comes out of that claim and that promise. The conversation keeps going and we have to kind of understand what Jesus is claiming to really understand why the conversation heads in the direction that it does. And so, um, really quickly, uh, Jesus is claiming that he's the light of the world. What that means is that light is relationship with God. He, he has the life of God, this eternal life with God, the Father, and he has come to earth as, um, as someone who can give that uh, to the people. And so, the way, the metaphor that he uses is light. 
to describe that. And he's coming into a world, a world that is broken, that is fallen, and you know this, you've lived in some of this, of, of the hurt and the pain and the, uh, the curse of the fall um, we, that we all experience in some way. Um, he walks into a world that is broken and painful, a world that has turned their back on God, a world that is destined for um, destruction. And uh, the way that John kind of encapsulates this world that Jesus comes into, the way that he describes it is he, he calls it darkness. And uh, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus uh, recognize that once we were in this darkness, we were part of this darkness. It's not just the material world, it's the, it's the people in it as well. And Jesus comes and claims to be the light of the world. And uh, he, he says, I have this eternal life from God that you so desperately need. And we understand that darkness means being disconnected from God the Father. And what you need to know about light and darkness is, is this, this ongoing theme throughout, Don, throughout John is that Darkness always puts up a fight for those who are going towards the light. Whenever there is something that is light-filled, whenever Christ reveals something about who He is, about who uh, the Father is, darkness is always fighting against it. And so we're going to see a little bit of how this light and darkness battle in this conversation between Jesus and and the Pharisees, because the Pharisees represent the darkness in the book of John. That's not to say that every single Pharisee never gets saved or any, anything like that, but in, in the narrative, they represent the darkness because they never believe in Jesus as the story goes on. So we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 13, and we're just going to work our way through. And uh, I'm just going to teach some of the text. And um, I'm just going to trust that, that God's going to be at work this morning, revealing things to you um, through His Word. So, verse 13 of chapter 8, this is uh, what it says. We're carrying on from this, this claim and this promise from Jesus. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. See, the, the Pharisees, this is amazing, is that they don't actually question the claim itself. They actually go to the Old Testament law and, uh, and say, you aren't telling the truth. And the reason that you're not telling the truth is because you're bearing witness about yourself. And they go to a legal technicality. And so what you need to know is the Old Testament law was this Mosaic, also called the Mosaic Law, was the law that God gave to the people of Israel uh, when Moses was around that they lived by. And the Old Testament law is really the character of God, lived out by a certain people at a certain time. Okay, And so the character of God is perfect. right? And so this is what it would look like um, in the law for God's people to live out His character here on earth. Right? And so the law was the character of God. Where it gets tricky, though, is that it's given to a fallen, broken, human nation. 
And so there's things in the law, almost like safeguards, right? Because one of the things about God is that he, he doesn't lie, right? He always tells the truth. He doesn't bear false testimony. But, and so you, you want the people who are representing God to also live that out. But we know there's, there's darkness inside of us. We've got broken morality at times. And so how do you safeguard or ensure that the people of God represent him well by always telling the truth or not bearing false witness? Well, you get witnesses to back up the claim that they're going to make. And so in the law, in Deuteronomy, it said that if you wanted to make a claim against somebody, you would have to have two witnesses who would back you up and say, yes, I've, I, I witnessed that, that is true. Now, this is really important because... Uh, sometimes if somebody committed uh, certain sins um, and that was found out and there were two witnesses who backed that up, it would result in the punishment of death. And so this is really important. And we still do this today to some degree where if you were to go into a murder trial, uh, it, they, they would bring forth witnesses who either saw it or could tell you more about what happened and, and uh, we would be, come to a, a judgment on that. And so this is where the Pharisees go to Jesus. And, and that's okay. The problem is that they don't realize who's standing in front of them. That the, It's actually the, the, the guy who, along with the uh, other members of the Trinity, gave them the law. And so as we work through John, you're going to see that Jesus is always describing spiritual realities with a physical metaphor. And the Pharisees only ever see the physical, and they never understand the spiritual, right? And so they're going to try and, and try and trip Jesus up, and they say, you can't bear testimony about yourself, according to the law. So Jesus answers them in verse 14. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus says, well, that's true that self-witness is not credible by the law. And he, he agrees with that. He actually says that in chapter 5, verse 31. He says, I've got something more credible than that. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I came from the Father and to the Father... I return. I came from the very one who gave you the law. Remember, Jesus is making the claim he's the light of the world. He has the eternal life of God. And that only makes sense if he came from the Father and he returns to the Father. And then he says something really interesting in, in verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, when he says that, what he really means is, uh, you judge by the flesh using human reasoning to make a judgment call. And, and you know this and I know this, that even, even when we do our best with the wisdom and the insight and, and what we have, the information we have, we still can get this wrong. When we make judgments. Uh, th this can be seen in all sorts of ways in society. Um, no more you know, evident is it where you have somebody who has been convicted of murder who sits on death row 
um, who went through a, a court room and the judge found him guilty or the jury of, uh, you know, 10 to 12 people heard all these sort of witness testimonies and evidence and declared him guilty. And then later we find DNA evidence that actually exonerates the person. We find out, oh, he actually didn't do that. Even though we use the best of our intelligence and what we know and what we can see, we can still get judgments wrong. And this happens all the time in our life because truth is a contested area, no more now than, than, than I think ever before. And, and uh, one of my favorite ways that I see this is conspiracy theories. Right? Conspiracy theories, they get floated around where somebody takes something that people think is true and they find an alternative version of the truth that is actually the real truth, right? And so a couple of my favorites is that we never landed on the moon, right? That never actually happened. And uh, what, what really happened was they went to a studio and they got the astronauts and they faked the moon landing because you, the U.S. needed this morale boost to beat Russia to get to the moon. And that was going to do it. And so they actually never landed on the moon. And what you saw on TV actually never happened. It was all fake. And uh, you can tell because the flag in the background is waving and there's no wind on the moon. So there is, there is the real truth, right? And then uh, another one is that the, the, the world's flat. You actually thought, you know, when we discovered that it was round, we were wrong. It's actually, it is flat. And the way you can tell is that when I pour some of this water on the ground, just it stays still. It doesn't, it doesn't fall off because we're flat, right? It's completely flat. If, we were really, if it was really a circle, that water would... Okay, so it's just ridiculous sort of stuff like that. My favorite, all-time favorite, I don't know who started this, is that Peter Sondergeld is a part-time pastor, full-time bodybuilder. Here's the evidence. He goes to the gym all the time, right? He's always going to the gym. You'd never see him with his shirt off, right? You'd never see that because he's just he's hiding it, but he's really jacked. He's always drinking coffee, but what is he putting in the coffee, right? Steroids maybe? I think so. You never see him on a Saturday because that's when the bodybuilding comps are, and he's there in his secret. And um, I don't know who started that, but I think that one could actually be true. Facts are undeniable. But these are just like simple examples of like we as humans in our own judgment, um, we can make the best judgment call based on what we know and the information we have um, and still get it wrong. Still get it wrong. Because the flesh is fallen. It's compromised. And when there's competing truths and your heart's in things, we just we cannot know for sure all the time that every judgment call that we make is true. We have limited reasoning, understanding, or insight. And Jesus never does that. He never judges like that without knowing the truth. He always knows the truth. And he always speaks the truth. See, we don't even have a category for that kind of person. We, we, we have never come across somebody like that who always tells the truth, not these little half-truths or, or spins a little bit of the truth to make things look a little bit different or has a, 
has a total understanding of the depth of the truth from every angle. Like we, we don't even have a category for somebody like that. There's, there's no image management from Jesus about, I'll just tell them half of this. And, in the result, and, and this resulted in him getting in all sorts of hot water with the religious leaders at the time. Which is quite ironic, isn't it? Like the guy that always tells the truth is the one that gets in trouble with the religious leaders. Because they just couldn't believe some of the things that he was saying. So when Jesus makes a judgment, it's always based on truth. And so he says, I never judge the way that you judge. I never judge from the flesh. So how does he judge? Verse 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And here's another theme that runs through John, is the relationship between the Son and the Father. It just bubbles along as you read through John, as you begin to understand who Jesus is. When he judges, he does it in conjunction with the Father. He, he and God the Father agree on their judgment of right and wrong. You don't have different judgments or points of view on things that are going on. The, the Father and the Son, they never disagree. They never look at something and the Father says, I think that's wrong. And then Jesus says, no, I think it's right. And they have to talk about it and try and figure it out. No, they're always on the same page. They always know the truth, speak the truth, and judge according to the truth. Verse 17. In your law, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus says the law requires two witnesses. My two witnesses are myself and God the Father who sent me. And at first you think, well, that, that's not going to work, right? They want two witnesses. You can't bear self-testimony. But if we think about this for a second, who's he going to call as a witness? If his claim is that he has the very life of God the Father, he is, he is the Son of God before eternity passed, Who's he going to call to testify to that? At the beginning of the book, John comes and bears testimony about who Jesus is and they don't believe him. He could bring the Spirit, but they're not ready for that category yet. And in chapter 14, he will. But who can he bring? He's the light of the world. So what does that leave him with? He could just walk the earth, never say a word, keep his mouth closed, leave the world in darkness. Or he can bring forth the truth and bear witness to himself and have his heavenly father as his second witness. How is he going to convince people or show people he is who he is? Well, he's going to tell the truth. 
about who he is, and then he's going to do something that reveals it to be true. Right? It's, it is words and works. And so Jesus will tell something about who he is. He will reveal something about who he is. He will tell a truth, and then he will do something that confirms that. And this happens all the way through the book of John. And you see, John is recording specific things that Jesus did. Just jump over to chapter 20 for a sec. And uh, verse 30. And this is, John tells us why he writes the book. Right? We don't have to try and figure it out. Um, he's really clear about what he is doing as he's writing this gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. As I say, Jesus did a bunch of things that aren't written in here that we don't know about. John didn't write about it, right? So, verse 31, he writes specific things. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John chooses specific things that Jesus did and he calls them signs. What is a sign? It's not just a miracle. Right? We look at the sort of stuff sometimes that Jesus does and we're like, wow, that's really cool. He does miracles. It's like, no, these are signs. What is a sign? It's a short-term indication of a long-term fulfillment. And so John records something that Jesus does that fulfills a prophecy about Messiah and it tells us something about what Jesus will ultimately do in the end. And so as he comes into a world that is in darkness, and he is the light, and he explains that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who can bring revelation and understanding and the life of God. He, he tells that truth, and then he does something to back it up. So in chapter 9, what does he do? He heals a blind man. Because... Blindness indicates somebody who is stuck in the dark. And in Isaiah, the Messiah was going to come to bring light to the nations and open the eyes of the blind. It's words and works. Here's the truth. Here's the works that back it up. And John says, I'm going to record these for you. So that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Right? Christ, Messiah, synonymous term. He wants you to know that he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He has the life of God and he's coming to offer it to you. And the purpose is that believing you may have this life. So Jesus is his own witness and his Father is his second witness. Let's just jump back, verse 19, back to the, the text. Pharisees, stuck in the physical reality, remember? Jesus says, my father's my testimony, so what do they ask? They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I say, okay, Jesus, so where is this father? Where is your father that you talk so much about? And Jesus is absolutely telling the truth, but they can't understand it. And they're accusing him of having no father. 
And, uh, and the belief at the time, the view at the time, is that Mary had actually had an illicit affair with a Roman soldier up in Galilee, um, in Nazareth, at, the, at an outpost there. And Jesus was the result of this, of this illegitimate relationship. And so um, commentator, one commentator said, In the East, to question a man's paternity is a definite slur on his legitimacy. It's almost like a first century, you know, mum joke. It's like, where, where's your dad? And they were having a go at how did he come about. They missed the virgin birth. And they say, you talk about your father, where is he? And Jesus responds again with the truth. You don't know the father because you don't know me. And the way through the, to the father is through me. And the reason you don't know my father is not because I'm lying, it's because you don't believe me. You have missed the light, and you're still in darkness. Another way to say it is you are blind. You've been blinded. He spoke these things, verse 20, in the treasury. We talked a little bit about where that was and why that's significant last week. Uh, as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And we see this again through all of John, this sovereign plan of God that will work its way out. And it was not time for Jesus to go to the cross. And so Jesus doesn't go to the cross. So he said to, the, said to them again, he continues the conversation, I'm going away, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus says, I'm going away, indicating that he is going to die, he's going to be resurrected, and he's going to return to the Father. And he says, you'll seek me. What does this mean? It means the Jews will continue to look for a Messiah. The, the Jews were always looking for the Messiah. That was always on their radar of the one who would come, who would rescue them, who would put them back on top of the world who would rescue them from the slavery or the rulership of foreign nations. And they're still looking today. If you know anything about Judaism, they're still looking for a Messiah, waiting for God to send the Messiah. And so Jesus says, I'm going away and you're just going to keep looking for me. You're going to keep seeking And I'm going away and you're going to die in your sin. Notice here that the sin is in the singular. It's just one sin. What is that sin? It is the rejection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he's saying, where I'm going, you, you can't come. Because in verse 12, he said, if, if you follow me, you will have the light of life. And you can't follow Jesus to the Father if you don't believe in him. And that's why the Pharisees can't follow Jesus and where he's going. And here's where the rubber kind of hits the road, because when you believe in Jesus, you will follow him. 
into the presence of God the Father. And it's the eternal life of the Father through the Son that you have when you believe. No surprise, the Jews don't get it. The Pharisees listening don't understand what he's talking about. And they say, well, verse 22, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. See, the Jews believe that if you were to kill yourself, you would end up in what we would call these days hell. And that must be the only place that Jesus is going because that's the only place that we would never end up as Jews, as the chosen nation of God, as Abraham's sons. We would never end up there. And if Jesus is going somewhere that we can't go, that must be what he's doing and where he's going. They don't get it. He said to them, Jesus said, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus tells them, actually, you've got it wrong. You're from below, I'm from, be- from above. I am from the Father, you are from this world. And in the world is darkness, it is perishing. And it will be one day destroyed and those left will remain in darkness forever. Unless you believe in me, you cannot go where I'm going. You cannot follow me to the Father. The sin of unbelief of rejection of Jesus Christ means you are accountable for all your other sins before the Father. Notice that the sins are now plural as Jesus expands what's going on. So what? What's the implication of this this text, this conversation that Jesus is having. See, there's been something hovering under the surface this whole time that Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees. And the passage doesn't fully draw it out, but as you read through the book, it's there. It's, it's, it's just over and over Jesus talking about something. And it happens all the way through John at different stages. It's the relationship of the Son to the Father. And what we learn is that Jesus and the Father are tight. See, just in this passage alone, here's some of the things we can see about Jesus and his Father. This is what he says. He says, the Father judges with me. The Father sent me. The Father is with me. The Father is where I came from. The Father is where I'm going to. The Father testifies about me. The Father knows me and I know him. Just in that small section, let alone John, right? And part of what John is doing is he is helping us see the the relationship within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is unlike any other relationship 
Within the Trinity, there is a mutual love, a joy, a sacrifice. In those three persons who are all one God, they relate to each other in a mutually submissive, mutually exalting, personally distinct, eternally existing, glorifying way. And Jesus says, the life that exists between the Father, Spirit, and I, I can bring you into it. See, if you get Jesus, you get the Father and the Spirit. And there's no way of you getting it apart from Him. There's no plan B. There's no other option. It's exclusive. And this is why Jesus will make these exclusive statements all the way through John, where he'll say, I'm the light. I'm the bread. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. There is no way to the life of God but through him. He has exclusive access. You see, and this is why it's so important that we understand and believe that Jesus is God himself because something lesser than can't get you to something greater than. And if Jesus isn't God, he can't bring you to God. He can't give you the life of God. And this is why this is the, uh, one of the um, absolutes of Christianity. And if you take that out of Christianity, you no longer have Christianity. You have something else. Jesus brings you to the Father. Because what we all need is a heavenly father. I'll finish with this story. Michael Jordan is the greatest player, basketball player that ever lived, right? He's the GOAT. Don't even bring up LeBron. It's not worth it. Doesn't come close. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player that ever lived. And uh, Michael Jordan was very close to his dad. His dad actually kind of gave him some advice and a little bit of a, a kick up the butt when he was a teenager to say, what are you doing with your life? And from that point on, Michael was focused on being the best basketball player he could ever be. And his dad was so influential in his life. He was his best friend. He was his confidant. He would go with the team as they traveled. Everywhere Michael went and played, his dad was right there with him. And uh, when, when Michael Jordan went to the Bulls, they, they were not a very successful team. And, and, and in 91, they won their first NBA championship. 
and his dad was right there celebrating. You can look at the photos and everywhere that Michael is celebrating, his dad is always right there or in the background or somewhere to be seen. And then they won again in 92. And then they won again in 93. And so they win three championships in a row. And uh, there's great joy and, and all those things that go, that go on. And after the 93 season, Michael's dad was murdered. He was taking a nap in his car on the side of the highway because he'd, he'd had a long drive. And just a random um, two guys came up and, and shot him. Uh, not knowing who he was, and uh, Michael lost his father. And uh, not long after that, he retired from basketball. Um, and he took solace in the fact that his dad watched him play his last game in the NBA. And uh, if you know anything about his career, he went on and, and tried his hand at baseball, actually. And then he was there for 18 months, trying his best to make it into the professional baseball league in America. And then uh, there was a strike for players in, in baseball. And Michael decided at that point he was going to come back to basketball. And it was just you know, huge news at the time that Michael Jordan was returning to basketball. And he comes towards the end of the 95 season and the Bulls are kind of making a, uh, a run at the playoffs, but he's out of tune, he's not, he's not fit, and so they, they bow out in the finals. But the following year, after a season, an off-season of, of training and preparation, the Bulls are back and Michael Jordan plays his first game without his dad there. And he goes through the 96 season and they make it to the finals and they win. And they win the uh, NBA championships. Fourth time in six years. And if you've ever watched sport, if you've ever watched um, basketball or really any sport, when the team wins the grand final or the championship or, you know, the, the highest prize, as that full-time buzzer goes or siren goes, there is just adulation as coaches and players all run onto the field and they're hugging each other and there's celebration and the Gatorade goes over the coach and there's streamers falling from the, from the roof and it's just, it's wild scenes as, as teammates hug each other and jump around and it's just this amazing celebration of, of all the hard work. And if you watch the 96 NBA championship, as they win, Michael grabs the game ball and he falls to the ground. And he starts weeping. And as the scenes continue in the United Center there, as they're, they're celebrating, a couple of minutes you, later, you realize that Michael actually isn't there. He's gone to the locker room. And there's a camera that had followed him into the locker room and we actually have photos and vision of, of him in there and he's on the ground weeping by himself. He's laying there with the, the game ball and he's, he's crouched over on the ground and he's just groaning in sadness, crying, letting out this emotion. You see, it was Father's Day. In 96. And as much as winning an NBA championship was important to him, all he wanted was his dad to be there. 
He wanted his dad with him. See, you can achieve the most amazing things. But if you are connected to your heavenly father, there will always be a void. And Jesus says, you will die in your sin. And where he's going, you cannot come. Jesus is claiming he can take you right into the presence of God. To be joined with him, to be joined into that Trinitarian relationship, to experience the full life and love that exists between them. A wholeness that can be found nowhere else. And you become an adopted son and daughter forever. Just as we wrap up, a question for you to think about. Where are you looking for something you'll never find? Where are you looking for the wholeness and the joy and the love and the life of the Father somewhere else? What is it that you think will bring you that? That you feel like if I get this, if I achieve this, if I earn this, if I have this, once we get to this house, once I have this in the savings account, when I achieve this in my career, that's when I'll be whole. Where is it that you look for a father's love that can't be found? Just as I, I'm going to pray for us in a sec, but um, the last four days I've been doing a uh, uh, restore group here at the church, intensive, emphasis on intense. And one of the things that has come out for me in these last four days is that um, even though I've been a Christian for a long time, I'm still, I'm still a child who needs his father. See, the, the metaphor, the understanding of adoption never changes as you walk through Scripture. And we, grew up, we grow up in maturity in our spiritual life and Paul talks about feeding on milk and becoming mature and, and things like that. But the image and the understanding of, of being a child doesn't go away. You don't, you don't turn into uh, an adult of God. Because inside all of us, we are still just children who need a Heavenly Father who loves us, who delights in us. And he 
He's the only one that can do that for us. And it's only possible through Jesus Christ who can take us to the Father. So I just want to give you a couple of minutes just to think through some of the things that we've talked about this morning. About where you might be trying to find life outside of God the Father. Outside of relationship with Jesus who can take you there. Maybe... Maybe the thought or the understanding of God as a father is so um, counter love to you. The thought, because either you had a, a poor father, um, never had a good example of that, never felt love from your father, and so the thought of God being a father is actually a turn off for you. And I would just say um, that makes total sense for you to think that way or understand that way. Um, but to be open to what the Spirit might do to show you what a good, loving Father is like that Jesus reveals to us. So let me give you a couple of minutes. Spend some time talking to your Heavenly Father. Um, God, Heavenly Father... Daddy, Papa, um, we need you. We need you more than we either realise or want to admit. Sometimes we want to be so independent of you. Um, and yet we're cutting off the very life that we so desire and seek. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the light of Christ in a new way that maybe we haven't before. Help us to understand who you are and how desperate we are for you, even though it may not feel like it. I pray you'd give us a love uh, for one another the way you love us and that we'd be able to grasp the love that you have for us. Um, would you help us with that? Thanks for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him, that he came down, that he had truth, that he revealed that truth, that he showed us that it is true and that he can lead us back to you, back to the place we belong in the Father's arms. Pray you administer to us as we sing this final song. Amen.